Bonjour. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Paris Gone By, the podcast where we explore Paris history for the curious traveler. Paris Gone By, or PGB, is for Francophiles and travelers who want to go deeper into the history of Paris. We'll go deeper than just the major monuments and take a look at the stories and the context that are woven into Paris's rich history. Together, we'll escape to the Paris of the past, walk along forgotten streets, and experience Parisian history in a new way. In addition to learning about the history, you'll also discover how to experience it in person or virtually. If you're curious about Paris and her history, and you want to immerse yourself more deeply when you visit, then Paris Gone By is for you. Before we begin, let me introduce myself. I'm Michelle, a lifelong Francophile, traveler, and history lover turned Parisian history blogger. I want to share my passion for Parisian and French history and help travelers experience that history in person. I first met Paris when I was 18 on my very first trip to Europe, and it was love at first sight. I knew she was the one. Her beauty, her history, her food, of course. And now I feel it's time for me to share that love. I hope you'll join me on this journey. As you've probably guessed, the PGB podcast is an extension of my blog, parisgoneby.com. On the website, listeners can go even more in-depth with show notes, articles, and resources to satisfy your Parisian curiosity. What should you expect from the Paris Gone By podcast? Each episode will take a look at some facet of Parisian or French history. Like most people, I love the big monuments, of course, so we'll take a look at those. But I also love all the little nooks and crannies of Paris and the stories that live in them. Stay tuned for new episodes coming out about every two weeks. Our first story is about Notre Dame in honor of the upcoming third anniversary of the devastating fire back in 2019. First of all, is it just me or does that somehow both feel like it was yesterday and way more than three years ago? Time has definitely lost all meaning lately. I remember watching the fire when the news broke. It was the middle of the workday here in the United States, and we were just glued to the screen watching the horrible fire, the horrible devastation of Notre Dame. And I went home that night and just cried and cried because I couldn't imagine the loss of Notre Dame. And what she is to me, I guess, is that touchstone Every time I'm in Paris, one of the first things I do once I'm settled in is to go to Notre Dame and kind of say, hey, I'm back. How you doing? Right. I love I love Notre Dame. And then that following morning when we woke up and she was still standing, I cried again. I was so relieved that she was okay. And they've started the actual restoration in earnest now that they've got it all cleaned up and secure. So I'm very excited about that. We have the fire, we have the destruction, and now we have that reconstruction. The rebuilding is coming along, and if Macron or the future president, whoever they are, has his way, Notre Dame will be open again by the 2024 Olympics. I mean, we'll see how realistic that timeline is as we get closer. It's a lot of work to get done. But why exactly is the president of France calling the shots on the restoration of a functioning Catholic church? Seems a little weird, right? But like many things in modern France, the reason goes back to the revolution. (music) 
Our story begins in November of 1789, so still at the very beginning of the revolution. The storming of the Bastille was just back in July of 1789, so we're only a few months after that major event. The National Assembly, in a decree whose title translates to the decree of the property of the clergy placed at the disposal of the nation, quite wordy, placed all ecclesiastical property into the possession of the state. Further legal actions made the clergy employees of the state and the church basically an arm of the state. Church services were allowed to continue at this point, but the ties with Rome were broken. No more Pope. This did not sit well with the devout Catholics who felt that the Pope, not the government of France, was the head of the church. They would be a thorn in the side of the revolution, despite the violence that was meted out against them. As the revolution kept rolling along, and some revolutionaries wanted a full de-Christianization of France, further incursions on the church were made. For a while, the churches were not allowed to function as traditional churches, but had to follow a new revolution-approved service and function. This is where you see things like the Church of Reason, but also, unfortunately, the desecration of the churches themselves, with statuary and other symbols being removed and destroyed. Think of the, uh, the heads being cut off of uh, the kings of Judea on the front of Notre Dame. We kind of move forward a little bit, and in 1795, the Directoire, the government du jour, has been set up, and things are slowly becoming less chaotic and destructive for France and for poor Notre Dame. Though it's still in a state of profound disrepair, regular church services were resumed. However, who was responsible for the upkeep of the building remained in flux. Several decrees in 1794 and 1795 basically said that it was safe and okay to worship again, but the state was still in charge of all things ecclesiastical and reserved the right to basically censor anything that it didn't feel supported the state or that it felt threatened its sense of peace and security. So... The church is back only, sort of. This is where it gets a bit confusing. After five years of financial support from the state, the 1794 decree opens with the French Republic no longer pays the expenses or salaries of any cult, which is what they called any religious group. Expenses presumably included the upkeep of the buildings. The two decrees were also fairly circular in their logic on who is allowed to raise funds for the clergy, and again, presumably the churches themselves. The number of presumably's that I just used exemplifies the confusing state of French bureaucracy at the time and, well, arguably now. Throughout it all, Notre Dame stood strong, if a bit battered. She's a tough old bird. But finally... There is a man whose ambition is matched only by his practicality. Of course, it is the one, the only, Napoleon Bonaparte. Notre Dame limped along for a few years until 1801. Napoleon, as first consul but not yet emperor, and Pope Pius VII signed a much less creatively named Concordat of 1801. Napoleon was definitely a more direct kind of guy. The Concordat gave permission for the clergy to report back to the Pope, but France was able to retain quite a bit of control over the church, the clergy, and the services, 
with the added bonus that France still owned the ecclesiastical lands. Napoleon also, in addition to the Concordat, snuck in an additional document called, in English, the Organic Articles. These further watered down the Pope's power over the French church. Pius was unhappy, but he submitted to these as well, because that's what you did with Napoleon in 1801. The Concordat and the sneaky organic articles went into effect the following Easter of 1802. So the Catholic Church has been restored. Napoleon and a reluctant pope have signed some legal documents confirming this. And that's that, right? Well, no, the saga actually continued. In quiet, decaying dignity, Notre Dame weathered the storm for the next century. She bore witness to Napoleon's coronation as emperor the topsy-turvy regime changes of the 19th century that you kind of needed a scorecard to keep along with, and a starring role in Victor Hugo's novel, Hunchback of Notre Dame, that resulted in a loving, if exuberant, restoration by Villiers-le-Duc. That restoration was paid for by the state under its obligations from the Concordat. The Parliament had to approve several budgets throughout the renovation, totaling, I've seen, about 12 million francs in all, which was a huge sum at the time. The last decades of the 19th century saw an increasing religious polarization across Europe, including inside France. The Concordat of 1801, by this point, had outlived its usefulness, and a movement to definitively separate the church and the state was increasing in popularity. In 1905, France finally made that separation official with the law concerning the separation of church and state. That is actually its name. This law and the subsequent related legislation declared that, well, to simplify it a bit, in regards to church property, cathedrals that were still in religious service were property of the state and churches were the property of the communes or towns and cities. These entities were responsible for the maintenance of the buildings, much to the dismay of those poor budget-strap communes. By our time, pre-fire, the Ministry of Culture was providing about 2 million euros per year for Notre Dame's upkeep, plus funds for some ad hoc restoration projects, like the one that inadvertently started the 2019 fire. After the fire, the Ministry provided an additional 31 million euros in emergency funds in 2019 alone, a very nice chunk of change, though of course it's not even close to the projected restoration costs. Thus, that's why there was all that additional fundraising, which continues to this day. But the diocese has to pay for the day-to-day costs of the church, including paying the staff, the cleaning, and the heating, etc. According to Les Echos, it costs 1,000 euros a day to heat Notre Dame, or at least it did pre-fire. Unhelpfully, those same laws prevent churches from doing most forms of fundraising, such as charging entrance fees, which help offset costs at other great churches like Westminster Abbey. But the state did allow Notre Dame a few exceptions, permitting the towers to be managed by the Centre Monument National, or the French National Heritage Centre, which is run by the Ministry of Culture, and a private foundation for the running of the Treasury Collection, which includes the Crown of Thorns. So in the end, Notre Dame, the building, belongs to the state of France in an awkward relationship between it and the Catholic Church and the competing needs of both of them. I wonder if the fallout from the fire will cause the French government to rethink their unique version of separation of church and state. 
Regardless of who owns what, for me at least, Notre Dame belongs to all of us in our hearts, and I can't wait to be with her again. I hope that you've enjoyed this look at the story of Notre Dame's ownership. If you did, please take a moment and click subscribe on your podcast app. Thank you so much. It really does help out. And thank you for listening to this first podcast of Paris Gone By. Don't forget the show notes and more can be found at parisgoneby.com. Have a great rest of your day. Bonne journée. A bientôt.